Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Nice to see folks. Looks like some people are in different locations. Inside, outside. Hey, well, if you're off camera and you want to come on just for a moment, you want to say hi to folks, maybe uh, consider turning on your camera and uh, show us your your Shana Punam. Thanks, Andy. Nice to see that Punam. Hi, Judy. All right. There's Sharon. There's Judith. Hi. Hey, Stan. Hi, Alan and Dale. Sander, Aglaia. Natalie, I see you. Shelby, I'm so glad you're here. Catherine, I'm used to seeing your name and not your face. Uh, and uh, and Elliot, maybe, I don't know if you've been with us before. I don't recall, uh, but uh, happy you're here anyway. Maybe you folks want to say hi to one another. You know how it works, right? You know, you get your finger ready and uh, one, uh, two, and three and take it away. Hi. Howdy, everyone. Uh, hello, hello, hello. Hello. Good to see you. All right. All right. All right. We've got some blue or teal. or That's a nice color. Thanks. I hope it's been a good week for folks. I'm, I'm wondering if uh, I wonder if anything came up in the last week that people wanted to share or talk about or inquire. I don't, did anybody try the mystery practice? Anybody uh, give it a shot? See what happened? You know, practice only works if you practice. It doesn't work if you don't practice. <laughs> but uh, if any anything uh, before I get going, I want to let you folks get going. Anybody have anything they want to they want to say over here? All right, nineteen sixty-seven. Thanks, Catherine. I wasn't sure which of the sixties it was. Sixty-seven. Uh, links to the uh, yeah Elliot um, I, yeah I think uh, they're all on YouTube I think if you just go on a YouTube and you search like Valley Bait Midrash Kleinberg I think you'll find them there that's probably the easiest way to do it um, thanks for asking oh uh, Alex you see the the note there from Catherine it says the host has to unmute you can you give everybody I don't know what that means I think you should have the ability to I'll I'll try to do this though i'll press the button to ask to unmute see if that works all right well you know sometimes miraculous technology doesn't work uh, it's fine it's fine okay i don't Sorry know that. it's all well it's all right okay i guess uh i guess the relative uh quiet means uh i should go is that what is that what's going on here <laughs> thanks alan i see you nodding yeah I, I like to just at least give people a chance you know so it's uh, we're five out of six, five out of six. Um, you know, next week you're going to have to talk a little bit because it's going to be helpful. I'm going to want to get a little bit of feedback. You know how it landed for people. So prepare yourself. I'm gonna I'm gonna wait longer uh, for you to talk. You know, get to that point of discomfort where you have to say something to overcome the the uncomfortable silence. So it's five out of six. Um, you know, we spent the first half, the first three sessions just just trying to kind of situate the Torah. Really, we spent three sessions just unpacking the title of the course. Uh, um, and then last week we got to a practice and um, and I called it uh, 
I called it uh, practice zero, practice zero mystery, mystery. Um, and uh, we're going to do practice one today. So this is practice zero. We're going to do practice one. Um, um, and uh, practice zero was was rooted in uh, in this simple, at least the clearest articulation of it, simple uh, Talmudic uh, instruction, right? Lame l'shon chalomar, eni yodea, teach your tongue to say, I don't know. I hope people have given it a shot, try it out, or or are going to, or maybe maybe you're already experienced with it, so you don't need to. Um, but uh, you know, I've used it for for a long time now, and I still find myself answering people's questions, and then a few sentences in realizing I'm just making things up. I have no idea what I'm talking about, and having to having to stop and say, "Hang on a second, I actually don't know. I don't know." Um, so the the practice that I don't know practice and this will set us up for 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 practice one. Uh, it does a few things. It does a few things. Let me. I didn't. I didn't do a lot of the theory behind the practice last week. Um, we just kind of went into it. But let me give you a sense of what a few of the things that it, it 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 might do, and this will help frame practice one. Um, it might do a few things. First, in no particular order, other than as they're coming to mind, uh, first, um, to state the obvious, uh, the I don't know practice uh, has the capacity to cultivate humility. Right? Cultivate humility. It's, it's uh, um, you know, there is a, uh, a general uh, reluctance, I think, in, in some parts of the culture to say, I don't know. Um, because in some ways maybe that's uh, perceived to be uh, lacking or, or weak or, or even maybe people are embarrassed but uh but I, I, I'm interested in in the in the positive um results of, of practicing I don't know and the first is 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 humility um humility of course is related also to the Jewish Kabbalistic term uh which some or maybe all of you are familiar with Tsimtsum right? Con contracting ourselves, right? Contracting, making ourselves smaller. Uh, and this, of course, in this case, uh, you know, with regard to the ego, right? Not not saying what we don't know, right? Like, like the teaching in the Mishnah that says, Al-Masha lo shamasha, Omer lo shamati. On that which you haven't heard anything about, say, I haven't heard. I haven't heard. The, allowing allowing the smallness. So that's one. So humility could, could be one uh, aspect. Um, and my sense is that the, the smaller one makes oneself, then the, the greater one can become aware of everything else that is, is around them. Um, the second thing that comes out of a, I don't know practice, which, which is, uh, is valuable if you can make everything else larger relative to your own smallness. And here I'm thinking about, I'm sure people are familiar with some of the great, uh, Japanese art of the last few centuries, you know, these great, portraits of, of kind of nature scenes and they're they're very very large and you have to look around to find these like these little tiny little uh representations of people right the people are just very very small and the mountains are very very vast right it's really uh, uh compelling um but but once you, once you've kind of uh, achieved that uh, the second thing that the i don't know practice uh may elicit is curiosity curiosity right because uh 
because you, because you are you are confronted on on all sides by uh, by things that are new that are revelatory uh, that are unknown to you, and so curiosity might lead to a desire to investigate, to investigate, to look in, to look into. We might even say to feel into, because looking, of course, is only one of our sense doors, right? To to, to come closer to to appreciate the the detail. So humility. Curiosity. That's that's one thing that might, or two things that might might uh, be developed if you engage in an I don't know practice. Another one, another thing that might uh, occur, uh, and this is a, a bit of a wonky term, but I think it's au courant right now, is it can cultivate what is sometimes called a kind of non-dual perspective. What do I mean by that? Very clearly, non-dual. Uh, because that could sound very esoteric. Um, all that means is, is that uh, in this context, is that if I can cultivate the awareness that it's all a mystery, and I don't know about you, but it seems clear to me, it is all a mystery. There's, there's, in my experience, there's no, there's no uh, moment of attention when I suddenly go, oh, right, now I get it. No, that, that, that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. It's all a mystery. Then what happens is, is that it, it all becomes one thing. It all becomes one thing. And by the way, the, the it is, of course, not something separate from oneself. Oneself is also part of the mystery. You can look down. I don't know about you. I'm looking down. I I see these things that we call legs. I have no, I don't know what they are. I don't, <laughs> you know, so you, the self the imagined self is as much part of the mystery as everything else. So everything is the mystery. Um, so this can uh, this this can cultivate uh, some kind of interesting uh, insights um, into uh, into how things are, into how things are. Uh, and remember, right? This this is on the on the waking up side of the ledger, right? It, the waking up will lead to I'm proposing, I think I proposed two or three weeks ago, will lead to a greater commitment to the doing good, right? So there's something in the realization that's all one thing that seems to lead to an inherent realization that that doing good is better. And that's because um, wherever I do good, I'm doing good to myself. Because it's all because it's all one thing. It's all one thing, right? Um, so these are the kinds of things that an I don't know practice may may elicit. And if they don't, I mean, that's fine. You know, there's no test. No one has, no one has to feel bad. Um, but my experience, one has to kind of stick with something for a while, and and uh, and then often the case is that uh, um, that the, the the insights occur, you know, just when you're not expecting, you know, certainly not when you're looking for them. But that's just to give you a little bit of a sense of 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 what a practice like this may elicit in a in a practitioner. Um, and there are others we could list. We could list others. Um, but these, um, you know, these aspects: uh, humility, curiosity, uh, you know, uh, 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 let's call it uh, uh, oneness, non-duality. Um, the 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 giving rise to a desire or, or a recognition uh, 
of the of the importance of doing good. Uh, these are all relevant as we go to practice one. So that's practice zero. Practice zero is mystery. Practice one is this. Practice one is this. Some of you that have learned with me for you know some time, you've heard, you may have heard pieces of this. It's just a, it's a, you know, I play the guitar. And I think I know this is the case. If you ask my wife, she'll tell you I play the same songs all the time, right? But of course, where I'm sitting, I'm playing them differently every time. But the differences are like, you know, they're very incremental. They're very slight. You know, am I holding the string a little bit longer? Is there more vibrato? You know, do I make the change more quickly? So same with this, this material. You know, I've been working with this material for a very long time. And it, it may, for, may for the outsider or for the listener may, may seem familiar uh, for what it's worth, uh, it, it feels it feels similarly to the, you know, to the to working on a piece of music. It's just just trying to work with it a little bit more to open up new new avenues. Um, so practice one is this. I just want to point out like something that struck me this morning that uh, the practice zero is mystery and practice one is this. Um, you know, there's something about the, the mystery uh, that in my mind feels like a kind of absence. I don't know. There's a, there's a kind of, um, in theology, we might call it, it's it's kind of apophatic. Uh, it's, it's not saying something about uh, what, what God might be. Um, this is, is what is sometimes in theology called cataphatic, maybe. It's saying something about it. It's saying something about it. Um, the difference between uh, uh, mystery and this, and this is where it just occurred to me that it was curious that I did them in this order, is that even mystery, even though mystery is about an absence, it's still kind of um, uh, conceptual and, and cognitive. You know, you, you pose the question to yourself, what is this? And then you go through the cascade until you arrive at, I don't know. You know, there's a kind of cognitive move that's being undertaken in the mystery practice. Practice one, this, um, is similar, um, but it removes the conceptual filter. Okay. So I don't know if that if what I just said makes makes any great sense to people, but I'll unpack it. It removes the conceptual filter. There's no cognitive effort required uh, to engage in, in in practice one, although we'll use our imagination later to conjure it. But there's no cognitive effort required, um, and in that way, I would say in that way, it's a deeper practice than mystery. Uh, the, the less conceptual we get, uh, I think, the deeper we go, which is to say that con the conceptual is, is a filter through which we have experiences. That's what concepts are, right? They're, they're, con they're, they're constructions of the mind, um, but they're not, they're not the thing itself, right? A tree, a tree is, is a, is a, is a, is a label, a concept of, a, of an object in space that we use to try to, to, to kind of uh, recognize uh, it as distinct from other things. But we all understand that tree is not what the thing is. Tree is not what the thing is. 
if we if we mistake the thing for tree, then we're committing a, a fallacy, a particular kind of fallacy. It's called a here's the SAT word. It's called a reification fallacy. Reification. We're, we're taking an abstraction and we're treating it as if it's an actual thing. Right? Tree, intelligence, you know, corporation. <laughs> Uh, administration, you know, these all these conceptual terms, right? They serve a certain function, uh, basically in terms of human communication, um, but uh, but they are second order, second order um, uh, representations of things themselves, and as such, they're kind of a reduction of those things. They're like a bootleg copy of those things. Um, and so this practice, what this practice does is it, it kind of clears away the conceptual filter. Now, mystery is, is, is about as slim a conceptual filter I can come, I can come to. Um, there are much thicker conceptual filters, I think, that, that we use. And you can look at any, any religion, really, or philosophy to find very highly developed conceptual filters. Um, and they have a function. Um, but... Uh, but in terms of our work, you know, you, uh, um, you know, rereading the Torah as a spiritual handbook, uh, the the I guess what I'm what I'm working towards is a is a kind of clearing away of the conceptual filter. So that, in in short order, we made a big jump. We went from mystery to practice one, which is a which is this. So what do I mean by that? Okay, that's all by way of introduction. What do I mean by that? So let's start here. So you remember a couple of classes ago, remember Aglaia asked me about the documentary hypothesis. We talked about the different authors in the Torah, right? Um, and it's clear that there are different voices in the Torah, different personalities. There may even have been, some of the scholarship suggests, there may have even been different scribal schools, different schools. Um, and just like in contemporary times in, in religious or spiritual communities, there are different schools. Uh, same was true probably in the ancient world. And just like today, there are you know, certain folks who are more theistic in their nature and some who are more uh, mystical in their nature, some more imminent, some more transcendent. Same is true in the Torah. Of the five books of the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, uh, Le Le uh, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy, I would say, is the one that has the strongest mystical tendency. You can find mysticism in other parts of the Torah, but I would say Deuteronomy is a kind of dominantly mystical text, and you can find um, uh, mystical themes uh, in many places in Deuteronomy. None more explicit, I think, than right here in Deuteronomy 4.35. And th this is a significant verse in and of itself, but let me just draw your attention that, you know, we're, we're in this season uh, you know, uh, the 17th of Tammuz, the fast, and the three weeks, and the 9th of Av is coming up, and then we'll be in Elul, right, the month of repentance, and then Rosh Hashanah, and the 10 days of repentance, and Yom Kippur, and at the crescendo of this whole season, uh, the season of, of self-reflection and, and tshuva, you get to the end of Yom Kippur. You're at the at the absolute crescendo, right? And what is the last thing that is said uh, at the end of the service in Yom Kippur? Seven times in a row. It's right here on on the verse here. Adonai hu ha Elohim. 
seven times, you know, you've been in the synagogue, you know, all day and you've been clapping al khait and you haven't eaten and uh, and you get to the end and then there is this just calling out Adonai hu ha Elohim, 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 Adonai hu ha Elohim. You know, it doesn't take uh, a genius to realize that the liturgist was trying to make sure we got something into our heads. <laughs> you know, there's something about in that state, you know, sometimes I think maybe it's a little cynical, you know, you go on a meditation retreat and, um, you know, meditating for many, many days in a row does a certain thing to one's presence, you know. And it's it's just in that environment that the Dharma talk, you know, the, the talk that's given it every day by the teacher, you know, has its has its greatest power, not maybe because they gave a great talk, but but certainly at least as much because you have no defensive and defenses left. You know, you're just <laughs> you're just much more open to the teaching, right? You're just much more open. Um it's like how good food tastes after you've been fasting for a long time, right? So here you have it, right? The, the liturgist is saying, okay, these folks, they've been fasting for 25 hours. They've been doing chuva for six weeks now. You know, they're about to go and eat. What are we going to make sure they hear on their way out of on here on their way out of the synagogue? These are the words Adonai Hu Elohim, right? So first of all, you could just think about that. I mean, I don't know. Maybe you think about it every year. Maybe you've never thought about it before, but right now, just think about it. What 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 must the liturgist be you know wanting to ensure that we we get into our heads you know um adonai hu ha elohim right which we would you know loosely we would translate god is the god right that, what does that mean okay so we're, we're going to we're going to it's not yom kippur but maybe we're going to try to reverse engineer today and and figure out what what that means so this is the context of the of those three words, right? Ataharetaladaat. You have been shown, uh, so that you would know. Ki Adunai hu Elohim. That Adunai Yudhevavhei. Yudhevavhei is Ha Elohim. It has the definite article there. Ha, the Yudhevavhei is the God. Ein od milvado. There's nothing other than, it's in the masculine, other than him, other than it, other than God. There's nothing other than God. Okay? Right? Adonai is the God. There's nothing other than God. Okay? So I'm, what I want to propose is we, we take the words quite literally. There's nothing other than God. Just take a moment. Look around the room you're sitting in. You could you could just rest your eyes. You know, you just take a look around. You're like, oh, you, oh, this is God, this is God, this is God, this is God. It's it's all God, right? Nothing other than God. That's the that's the statement, right? Right there, clear. Now, in case you didn't, you know, it, it wasn't clear. Uh, maybe a, a scribe or a prophet from the same school uh, that wrote this verse uh, wrote these extra verses in the book of Isaiah, just to make sure we get it, right? This is Isaiah chapter 45. 
Isaiah reads, Va'ani Adonai. I am Adonai. I am Yudhevavhei. Ve'ain od zulati Elohim. Right? I am Adonai. There's nothing else. Ani Adonai ve'ain od zulati en Elohim. Besides me, there is no God. A'azercha velo yadatani. I surrounded you, though you have not known me. Leman yeidu mi mizrach shemesh umi ma'arava ki efes biladi. So that they may know from east to west that there is nothing but me. Ani Adonai ve'enod. I am Adonai and there is nothing else. Yotzer or, again, just to get a little more explicit. Yotzer or, I form light. And I create darkness. Osei shalom, I make peace. And here's the line, right? You say, okay, yeah, you, you know, fine. Deuteronomy says that God is everything. So what? Is God the Holocaust? Is God famine? Is God cancer? Is God uh, child mortality? The prophet says, yes. And I create evil. That's what the prophet says. Ani Adunai Ele. I Adunai do or or make all of these things. By the way, the last verse you may be familiar, it may it may it may you may recognize it. Uh, we we encounter it quite often in the liturgy, but with a slight edit. Here it is in the morning service. In the morning service, uh, just before we say the Shema, there's a blessing uh, for the Shema, right? Right, and the blessing goes, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam. Right, blessed are you, God, sovereign in the universe. Yotzer Or, Uvarecho Shech, right? Make light, create darkness. Osei Shalom, maker of peace. Uvarecho Hakol. You see, the prophet says, I create, I create evil. The liturgist took out evil and said, creator of all things. Now, we don't know exactly why the liturgist did that. But there's a couple of possibilities. The first is maybe the liturgist thought, if if it says that God creates evil, people aren't going to come back to synagogue very often. You know, and that's, I, I don't know about that. You know, there's a tendency in religious and spiritual life to have a certain elitist view that uh, that uh, that the masses can't handle the truth. You know, there, there is, the, re, read Maimonides. Maimonides is pretty clear like that. You know, it's a kind of an elitist view that people can't handle uh, the truth. I, I I don't know if if that's the case. I've never had a serious conversation with anybody where it didn't seem like they were able to handle anything. You know, uh, just just meet someone where they are. Um, so I don't know if that's the case. You know, another way, maybe a more generous reading is that uh, you know, a creator of all things is a is a, you could imagine it as a kind of transcendent reading that there's a certain level of existence upon which good and evil also get get neutralized right but there's only there's only perfection so whatever whatever the explanation is um the deuteronomist in the torah and isaiah uh are, are very clear now by the way this is a, a particular voice in the tradition you might read this and it may turn your stomach and that, and that that's fine that's fine um found it comforting yeah can you say a little more about that because it's the truth for me. Okay. So the other one has stunned me to find out that they that we had changed Isaiah's point of view. I mean, it starts at the beginning. It's, there's this tree of good and bad. So who created the tree? 
So this is, it shouldn't surprise me that Isaiah, you know, understands that he's that God also created uh, evil. That's not it's not a stretch. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yeah, so it's more easy to, to stick with. I mean, I changed it back in my head. By the way, my prayers. So mm-hmm. yeah, both. Uh-huh. You say one, but you imagine the other. No, no, I say the other. I say the. They say uh, the real one. They say the one that's from Isaiah. Yeah. Uh huh. Great. Stan, you got a hand up? Yeah, I I don't think you can read Adonai Elohim in a vacuum without reading the first paragraph of the Shema, which we say uh, what is that seven seven times or three times, and then we mm-hmm. do Shem. We only do that once a year in traditional Judaism. So I think you have to read all three of those together mm-hmm. rather than just Adonai Elohim. And then, and then try to figure out what does it really mean when you read the three of those together. I love, and the, I love the, Shema, the, the Shema starts that part of the service. So we get to build a seven. And Baruch Shem Kavod is three times. And then, right. yeah. Then. Understood. But my, my point is that it's hard to just isolate three words when you're those, those two paragraphs ahead are very, very necessary. And why do we do work shame only once a year allowed yep. in traditional synagogues? <laughs> yep. I say that out loud too. <laughs> well, anyway. I, uh, I understand. I appreciate that. And uh, I propose a couple of like uh, standard and then a couple of wacky translations of the Shema. And Stan is exactly right, right? That, that you, if you're going to start with uh, Adonai Hu Elohim, then you have to move backwards, right? Through the Shema. So here's the Shema and here's four translations, right? So here's the Shema. So first one, right, is fairly standard. Listen, Israelites, Adonai, our God, is Adonai, the one God. Right? That's the that's the kind of the monotheistic reading. Right? There's just one God. Right? It just happens to be the God that we worship. That's the one God. Right? Okay. Um, could be. A uh, second one. Listen, Israelites, Adonai, our God, is Adonai, one. The one. Right. This is similar. This is consistent with the Deuteronomic, the Deuteronomy reading. Right. Our God is is one is is all that there is. Right. Adonai is all that there is. That's different than monotheism. Right. I mean, I guess in effect, it means there's only one God, but it's not a polemic against, you know, people that have more than one God. It's just a statement about about all things. Another way you could read the Shema, right? Listen, Israelites. And this is, by the way, from a little bit from the punctuation. If you look on the Hebrew, so first you see under, I'm pointing with my cursor, under the Aleph, there's a cantillation mark there. It's called an etnachta. The etnachta is like a comma, right? So you, it's most likely that, you know, there's a comma after listen, Israelites, or a, or a colon or some kind of punctuation. But then you'll notice here, you see there's a bar, a vertical bar between the second, the, the penultimate and the last word. So the vertical bar is there because when you say the Shema from a kind of classical Jewish legal perspective, when you say Adonai, you want to leave a, a gap. You want to pause before you say the word Echad because otherwise they could they could just merge into each other, right? So Adonai, Echad, right? But if you're being a little bit playful, maybe you could read the verse to, to say, listen, Israelites, Adonai, Eloheinu, Adonai, one. <laughs> you see, you could read it that way, right? Like by whatever name you call it, one. 
right? You know, they have Allah, they have Jesus, this one has Brahman, this one, right? One, right? You can call it this, you can call it that, you can call the other one, okay? That's a, here's number four, even, even more playful. You, this, this one may make some people uncomfortable in their chair. You could, let's put the comma after the first word. Listen, listen. Israelites are Adonai. Eloheinu is Adonai. One. <laughs> right? Shema. Yisrael Adonai, Eloheinu Adonai. Which now, of course, it says Yisrael because because it's a tribal it's a tribal document, right? The author of this, of this document thought they were different and better than everybody else. Okay, we now we now can we're more evolved than that, right? So we could say, listen, people are God, and God is God. It's all one thing, right? So a lot of different ways we can read that verse, but what seems fairly consistent. Um, is that uh, is that it's 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 not a departure from Adonai Hu Elohim. In fact, it's it's consistent with that, right? It's a statement about 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 God being being you know all of it. Okay, and this makes sense because what's the next line in the Shema? Right? And you shall love Adonai your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. So what does all your heart and all your soul and all your might mean? I think what it means is quite serious and quite obvious as well, is in whatever direction you turn, there is God. Love it. In whatever direction, all your, all your heart, your soul, and your might. We might say, through all of your sense doors, right? Your five senses and your interoceptive and proprioceptive senses, right? Your capacity to experience. At each experience, you encounter God, which is to say, it's all God, right? And once you realize that, you shall you, you'll love it. Why? Because because the distinction between the, the you and God distinction, it just evaporates. The self and other distinction evaporates, right? The human divine distinction evaporates. It's all, it's all Adonai Elohecha, right? It's all Adonai Elohecha. Okay. So now, if this is not obvious to everybody, which I don't know if it is obvious to most people, we have a tradition in, 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 in Judaism to try to like encourage us to to make it more real, make it more uh, uh, more part of our experience. Maybe you know this verse from Psalms, right? Shviti Adonai Negdi Tamid, Shviti Adonai Negdi Tamid, right? If it's not already clear to you, right, that it's all Adonai Hu Elohim, Ein Od Milvado, right, Echad. If it's not already clear to you, then then you can practice. <laughs> You can practice um, this awareness. Shviti Adonai Negdi Tamid, right? I Shviti Adonai before me at all times, constantly. What does Shviti mean? It's interesting, right? All these different possible translations, right? To agree with, to be, or to become like, to level. That's a really nice one. To resemble, right? To, to have an equivalence, yes? To set, to place, Right? The, the psalm is very clear. Shviti Adonai Negdi Tamid, right? All, all the time, Tamid, constantly, right? So this is a practice, right? We, we talked about this a little bit last week already. You just be walking around all day long. You got, 
You could do it in English all day long. This is God. This is God. This is God. I was once crossing the road from my house and I saw a person in the parking lot of the supermarket and they were walking. And the whole time they were walking, they were crossing themselves. They didn't look agitated in any way. Right. And I looked at it. I said, oh, this is a Shviti practice. This is the Christian who's doing Shviti Adonai Nekdi Tamid. They're just... You know, as they're going, they're doing cross practice. That's what they're doing, right? You know, uh, you know, you ever see on you're on the subway. I'm thinking about New York City. You're on the subway. You see the nuns with the beads, you know, and they're they're clicking the beads, right? It's a shviti practice, shviti practice, right? So in the Jewish tradition, you know, not so much about objects. Although later on in Jewish history, this turned into an object. There are there are plaques. In synagogues, often uh, Hasidic synagogues, there are plaques that have yud hey vav hey on them that people look at as a way to remind themselves. So if if this is not already obvious, if this is not already obvious, if this is not already right, shviti adonai nekdi tamid, right? What else are uh, mezuzot and tefillin and right. tzitzit? That's right. That's right. That's right. Yes. So what? Uh, that's right. And right. The only difference is those are objects. And you know what happens sometimes when people use objects to represent the thing is that they the objects become sacred in a way that is, dist- you know, so here it's just direct. But they're meant to be a reminder. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like like a, a very gentle dope slap. That's right. That's right. I have, uh, you can't see it because it's behind my screen, but I'm looking at you and behind my screens, I, ha- I have a talit hanging on the wall with the tzitzit. So I'm, every, I'm sitting at my desk all day. I'm looking at a talit with tzitzit. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. 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 Right. But what Which I'm, what I'm yeah, Sandra, go ahead. It's interesting because <clears throat> if you were wearing it, you wouldn't be as aware of it. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what, what looking Watching other people walking the shul with their sit showing is a reminder because I can see it. You know, even the key positive sits it, even though there's no halakha around it. You know, as a, as a reminder, you put a key on. It's part of dressing for, in a form of uh, some humility and uh, adds to the reminding. It's, it's tactile. You put it on your head. So but that's what I that's what I've noticed early on that the people wearing them forget they have it on, especially if it sits at Catan. That's all I have to say. Yeah, well, so I think that first of all, so but it sounds like I hear you saying, Sander, that they may forget about it, but you seeing them reminds you. Absolutely, hundred <laughs> percent. So that's great. So that's great, and and the, if you're right that the people some some people wearing it forget about it, that's the. That's what I was trying to suggest in a, a moment ago to Judy is that sometimes the object becomes so, you know, habituated or ritualized, uh, you know, it doesn't necessarily do the do the trick. But, yeah, um, there's probably some value in, you know, I don't know, I'm just saying this off the cuff, but, you know, switching your reminder practice every few months or so. There's probably some value to that, you know, um, so that I, I, I mean, I remember we was living in our last house. Uh, a lot of there were a lot of crows, just a lot of crows around, and so I just made the crows my reminder practice for like a long time. Every time I see a crow, I go, "Oh, look at that!" Because <laughs> you can use anything. Because once you realize it's all God, you can use anything, right? And it and it goes it goes in and out, right? It goes, <laughs> and this becomes this kind of reinforcing kind of process. 
Um, and also the crow thing as well. Let me say one other thing. What what really provoked me to do that was that for a, for a split second, I was like a little annoyed by the crows. And I went, oh, that okay, now I know I need to work with it, right? So, so Dafka, like choosing the things that it's not obvious to you that they might be, um, uh, they might not be a reminders or it may not even feel believable uh, that, uh, that they too might be God. I would say those are exactly the things you want to work with because, because what you're trying to do is you're trying to um, remove the tendency in the mind to look at something in the world and say, this isn't God. And let me make it now very real, right? Because, of course, not anybody on this call, but because that's what people do to other people and non-humans as well, right? We look at another person and for some reason, they just don't, they don't, they don't rank, right? In our pantheon of what is divine. I mean, how else could people do the things they do to other people? right? How else if they don't realize that this too is divine? And so this kind of a practice, um, it, it, it reinforces our capacity to see any person, anything, any environment, any situation, and understand that this too is, and I need to love it. I need to love it. And that's a very, you know, that's very harsh. That's right? very hard. You could say to yourself, boy, there's some people I just don't want to love. I get that. I, I understand that tendency. Um, and it's not necessarily everybody's not for everybody. Um, but but if if you're bought into the idea that ain't od mil vado, there's nothing other than God, then the person you can't bring yourself to love means that there's some hole in, in yourself <laughs> because it's you, because <laughs> it's you, right? It's you. So this is the uh, this is the where we're going, Aglaya. Okay, so I don't know if anyone else remembers this movie, though, but it was like way back in the day. It was um, uh, Jack Nicholson and um, I think it was Helen Hunt and uh, someone else was in it. He was an artist. And the artist said that he would actually just watch people before, you know, he did their portraits. He just liked to watch their mannerisms and everything. And then all of a sudden he would just say, hold it. And then that's when he would actually sketch them. He would actually start the painting. Now, it was, I think the line was, see, it's hard for me to remember, but um, yeah, the line was, if you stare at someone long enough, you discover their humanity. That's what it was. And so that's what I'm kind of hearing here. Also, there's another, there are all kinds of ways you could take this, like you could actually choose, okay, well, crows, for instance, so, but perhaps there's a reason why you chose crows for that particular month. I mean, maybe something a crow did, like, you know, kind of took you by surprise, <laughs> you know? I mean, it could happen though, but he would actually say, no, this, you know, like um, the artist was telling people, you look contrived that way. No, just walk around the room until I actually find you. And then, you know, all of a sudden he'd just say, hold it. And then that's when, so that's what I'm kind of hearing. Maybe that's another kind of practice people could do. I don't know. I, I would love to hear how it goes. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I see, uh, I see. You know, Judy said that might make us all into Janes. You know, not the worst thing. Uh, you know, how can you swat a fly or root out an infection? Well, you can ask my wife. You know, if there's a bug in the house, uh, she comes to get me because uh, she would kill it, and I uh, collect it and I take it outside and I say, hey, "Thanks for visiting with us." That it's just it's just a choice you have to make, right? I'm not each person will do what they can do. I don't think my wife is a terrible person because she'll kill the fly, 
I just don't want to kill the fly. That's all. <laughs> That's all. Um, so I'm uh, I'm open to that. I'm open to that um, because uh, because I have this notion that the fly is just how that manifestation of the divine came into being. And so like, let it have its experience of this in that way. That's, that's, a, that's the story I tell myself about that fly. Um, I don't know if it's, if it's better or more right than any other story, but, uh, but I do think, but I do think that, um, or at least maybe I want it. I don't know if it will. I want that to uh, re translate into not only making sure that the fly doesn't get killed, but making sure that I meet uh, other human beings in the fullness of who they are and care for them, uh, uh, you know, as as full as full human beings. And and so maybe my maybe the practice of protecting life, maybe that will flow over into the rest of a person's life and influence the way they they treat other kinds of living uh, living entities. Um, so uh yeah and I get it Aglaia I get it uh cockroaches scare me as well I'm so glad I don't live in a place where there's a lot of co cockroaches I don't know what I would do if I lived I'd have to make a serious decision I have to go to synagogue on Yom Kippur and really think about it you know <laughs> uh Judith why do you have the last word I hope not uh do you also feel that way about the scorpion or the rattlesnake who is ready to sting yeah, so of course, the, right? So the question is, is, you know, safety. I will tell you a funny, I mean, this is just kooky about me. I'll tell you a funny story that I was out hiking with my good friend Simon uh, in the hills in Northern California, I don't know, a year or so ago. And we uh, we did come across a rattlesnake in the path. And and I, you know, I could be so uh, naive and clueless sometimes. I just saw it and I was so drawn to it. I started walking towards it. I started talking to it. And my friend said, you cannot do that. You know, like he started shouting at me. And anyway, he explained to me all about rattlesnakes. I didn't, you know, I grew up in, I grew up in the project in London. I don't know about rattlesnakes, but he told me there's a lot of danger. And so, uh, you know, I, um, but I hear what you're saying. I mean, uh, of course, I mean, uh, it's a complicated, uh, it's a complicated picture, but I wouldn't want. That could have been a moment of seeing God though, because you're seeing God in something that's extremely dangerous and pretty scary. Yeah. yeah I'm open to that. I guess what I want to say is I don't, I wouldn't want um, the exact, the moments when we have to uh, for, for, for self-preservation or self-protection, where we have to uh, diminish the life of another. And it could be an animal and it could be a human being also an animal. Right. I wouldn't want that necessity in certain extreme situations to then become permission to behave in the same way in less extreme situations. And I have a feeling I don't know if it's true, but I have a feeling that a disregard for life in some contexts leads to a disregard for life in other contexts. That's my feeling. And so uh, we'll pause with that next week. We'll finish out. We didn't even get to practice one. So we'll get, we'll come back next. This was all setting it up. We'll get back and come back next week and we'll do the practice. Good to see everybody. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybaitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybaitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.